Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Most Christians don't see themselves as theologians or care much about theology. They think that theology is something done by scholars and mostly results in confusion and division and has been known to lead to war, torture, and exclusion, but has very little to do with the actual daily lives of the average person. However, a widely held definition of theology is St. Anselm's motto that theology is faith seeking understanding. With this definition, most of us do theology in some way. We all have those, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God type questions that cause us to reflect and puzzle and seek answers. Here's the thing. Although theology does have the scholarly side, theology is really a tool and a means for us to process our experiences, especially in relation to God. St. Augustine provided us in his book, The Confessions, with an example and a model for how theology is a tool for processing one's experiences and relating to God. He showed us how being willing to open up one's life to the public and being transparent about and confessing one's questions, doubts, sins, immaturity, waywardness, confusion, loss, pain, grief, and anger, but also one's encounters with God, experiences of God's grace and forgiveness, and what one has learned in the process by writing these things down and publishing them in the form of a memoir is a way of doing theology and being a theologian. For many, a memoir is also a method of healing through writing. As Christians, we can be thankful that others have been willing to follow Augustine's lead and to produce their own memoirs about their journeys of faith, to use theology as a means of processing our experience in relation to God. One of those is my guest for this episode, Jana Barber. Jana is the daughter of a pastor and also the wife of a pastor. She is a blogger, storyteller, and poet, and has come to talk with us about her memoir of faith, Hidden in Shadow, Tales of Grief, Lamentations, and Faith, and to share with us some more of her poetry. If you've been a listener to this podcast, you will recognize Jenna from my interview with Foundling House, where she read some of her poetry before. Jenna's book and her poetry are not just devotional. They are works of theology offered by one who, although she may not perceive herself in that way, practices being a theologian, a person of faith who, through her writing, seeks understanding. So welcome back, Jenna. Thank you for being with me again. Thank you for having me. Well, your book's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for reading. So to begin, um, you know, different folks have different motives in their life, and that applies to writers as well. Yeah. Uh, So in your own mind, uh, you know, what do you consider your purpose from writing? What is that? that kind of motivates you? Um, 
So I guess I probably in my early 20s, I came across a book called Traveling Mercies by Anne Lamott. And when I read that, I thought I'd always enjoyed writing poetry and um, had a notion that I might write a book someday, but I knew that I didn't really have story ideas. I wasn't a didn't ever mess around with fiction. I loved writing essays. And um, that was the first time that I thought, oh, I could maybe write a book like that. And um, I thought that her story um, was so different than mine and her encounters with Christ, but um, I still felt a connection to her through the things that she told. And I thought, you know, if somebody could get that same, uh, whatever I got from her book from me, that would be awesome. So I set out to try and do that was probably my first motivation. And then I discovered the more that I wrote, the more good it did. It was good for me to, to help me process my life and things that were going on. So those are my main motivations. Well, yeah. So you just mentioned that, uh, you know, you hadn't done much in fiction. Is that mm-hmm. something that you are changing your mind on or I wish uh, are you going <laughs> to, I do, um, think in ways, in some way it would be easier to do fiction. Um, because you can maybe disguise some of the, <laughs> you know, it's, it's harder to tell your family. I wrote, a story about us, you know, or to tell your mom, you might not want to read this part about you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. So, um, but I have, I've written a couple of short stories. I just submitted one to Oxford American last week. So we'll see if that goes anywhere, but I, I have a writer's group that I go to once a month and a few of the guys in there write these really big, long fantasy fiction type books. And I just joke with them that I don't have another world inside my head. You know, I don't, my brain doesn't work that way. I only (laughs) know the real world. So I think it'd be fun to try realistic fiction at some point, but I don't have a story idea. I think, yeah. Well, how do you, how do you see the difference between uh, blogging and your memoir? Although I know that Um, you, you know, you blended over the two uh, you mm-hmm. borrowed from your blog I, yeah but, but still how do you see the difference in in those two mediums um well you know um the blog can be just a daily log of anything that happens you know whatever you're thinking about i think with a book you want to have a theme and you kind of want to go someplace take a journey with it so um my essays all, I hope, sort of draw a circle for the reader um, and paint a specific picture. So I think that a blog is more just in the moment and not, you know, I work a lot harder on a published piece <laughs> than on the blog. So, um, yeah, you talk about in your book um, that writing for you is a form of prayer. Mm. I'll elaborate on that. What is that? Yeah. So I think um, that it's harder to concentrate 
when I'm just thinking a prayer. Um, so even saying out loud makes it easier to focus my attention on what I'm talking about, but writing does that even more so. Um, I can just, the best analogy I have <laughs> is kind of like, um, my mind is like a radio and there's a lot of static, but then when I put the pen in my hand, it's like a, an antenna that just helps focus all the noise. <laughs> and, um, so yeah, I can get a clearer connection, say what I want to say. And then eventually when I'm able to stop and I've said everything I need to say, then my brain's more quiet and I can hear from God as well. So prayer, I think should be a two way street, not just me talking all the time too. So yeah, that's how I think about writing. Well, in your book, you speak of your theme um, as that of lamentation. Mm -hmm. um, and that that kind of evolved in your thinking. Yeah. Uh, kind of came on you. Um, what is lamentation? What is lamentation? So we have in the Bible, the book of Lamentations, and um, we also have other examples of people lamenting. And the difference in grief and lament is, I think, that grief is something that you can just do by yourself or with other people, but lament is specifically turning that grief toward God and looking to Him for hope. Um, and so you're not just complaining, you know, and having lots of, you, you're looking for a solution with the complaints that you have and you're trusting God somehow. That's a, a piece of lament for me. It's not just expressing sorrow. It's also giving it to the person who can do something about that sorrow. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Well, how did that, how did that, evolve in your mind that, that this is what you wanted to write on? Um, well, I think it was recognizing when I first went to therapy as a young mom that I didn't have that space for lament growing up, that I didn't understand what lament was growing up. I knew that um, I'd been taught the salvation message from birth, and I knew um who God was, who Jesus was. I believed I had a relationship with them, but my family life, um, because of my dad being a pastor and not really finding success as a pastor, we, we moved a lot. We, um, he was let go three times before I graduated high school. And, um, so even though we were a close knit family and we, got along and loved each other, we had sadness. And so it was just this weird um, environment where we were supposed to have the truth and we were supposed to have joy, but it felt like we were sad a lot. And I didn't understand um, why did we didn't talk about the sadness and the tough things in life. We just, the culture I grew up in was like, if you have Jesus, then everything's fine and everything wasn't fine. So I wrestled with that in therapy and, um, realized that as I started journaling with my therapist, that, um, writing was an outlet for me to express that sadness and that sorrow. And, and I thought, well, if 
I had that experience. Maybe there are other people, you know, not everybody's a preacher's kid, but there are still people that grow up with sad things. And, and, um, I think in evangelical world, um, there, there wasn't space for expressing sorrow. Um, there wasn't just a lot of time spent on the old Testament, I guess. (laughs) Maybe it was just all about having the gospel message every week. I don't know. So I, um, I'm still in a non-denominational church, but I've visited lots of liturgical services in the past 10 years. And, um, I've talked with some worship leaders in, uh, liturgical settings. And I think that there's more of a space for, uh, lament and tough questions in that setting than kind of what I grew up with, if that makes sense. Oh, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, because you and I grew up in a similar context. Yeah. And and uh, I would say definitely that, uh, you know, the liturgical uh, and more Catholic even mm-hmm. uh, experience understands lament better. Eastern Orthodox understands lament better than, than we do. Yeah. Uh, and in part, how I ended up being uh, and learning about you and, and Adam mm-hmm. uh, was, you know, that Wade Bibb. Yeah. Uh, Adam Pastor, uh, you know, a questioned about, you know, where are the laments and the reflective songs in contemporary uh, music styles? Yeah. And, uh, and apparently he was talking with Adam at the time, and Adam said, well, we have them. It's just nobody will play them or <laughs> nobody will publish them. Right, right. You know. Yeah. And, um, so, yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, in that sense, uh, I, I, I thank you. Uh, for opening that door uh, into the more evangelical realm, yeah, uh, to enable people to do that. Well, and and so you are, you will be, you will be the second of three uh, interviews that I have mm-hmm. with people who have memoirs. Okay, and in each case, mm-hmm. uh, their purpose in writing the memoir. Uh, has been healing. Mm, yeah. Um, have you found that to be common? Uh, that memoirs uh, are are mostly about healing. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think there is a um, a sense of um, understanding your own story more as you tell it to other people, and that. Um, as they bear witness to your story, that does provide healing. Um, I don't know that everyone realizes it when they set out to write a memoir, you know, but when they, once you get about three quarters of the way, maybe you figure it out that, that it worked on you as much as you were hoping to help other people by telling your story. Well, you speak in, in, in your book Mm -hmm. about, uh, going and finding people uh, that you can talk to. Yeah. Uh, counselors or pastors. Yeah. Uh, but, and so, and, but at the same time, you then talk about how writing is a, is a, is a venue for you mm-hmm. and healing. So in your mind, what's the interplay uh, between those two, yeah. the talking therapy and the writing therapy? Yeah. So uh, the joke there is that, you know, we talk about people being verbal processors and, 
I don't even know what the other kinds of processors are. Visual, I guess, um, is one. Um, and maybe people work things out by manual labor, you know, by going for a run. I know that I'm a verbal processor, but I'm also like a multi-layer processor. And I have to have like the writing element and the talking to someone else um, element. Um, you know, I realized after a couple of different therapists and a, several different years that um, it's not enough to know that God loves me. Um, you know, it's we, because I'm human, because I have a flesh and blood experience, I need the flesh and blood experience of God. And I think that sometimes we can be that for each other. Um, pastors, counselors, therapists, um, you know, if, if we could just believe everything that the Bible tells us about God and we didn't have Jesus, you know, why did Jesus come? We needed that flesh and blood experience of, of Christ. And, um, so I think that my, the people that have witnessed my pain and helped me deal with that have been like Christ to me. Um, so yeah, writing doesn't do that all the way, but I can, uh, you know, I can write about something and then I can talk to somebody about it and then I can write about it again better and I can make art, you know, like an, an essay or a poem. Cause a lot of times the rough draft is just me getting it out of my head, you know? Well, do you ever take the writing into your, into your counseling? I do. I have done that. Yeah. <laughs> when I first started counseling, I sat in there and I didn't really know how to talk to her about what was going on. I was having, I just knew that I was angry all the time and losing my temper and I was scared I was going to hurt my baby. And, um, so I just sat there and I, she would ask pretty simple questions, but I just, I didn't know how to talk about things that I'd never shared before. It was like an emotional muscle that I hadn't ever worked before. And so she finally, after a couple of pretty quiet sessions, had me write something in my journal and then I brought it back and read to her and that helped. And I did that for two or three times. Yeah. And then I've occasionally brought in an essay or a journal entry to my therapist and said, here's what I was writing about the other day. And they listened and it's, it's good. In the preface of your book, you use a wonderful analogy uh, about uh, the new moon uh, being something that should teach us to believe in things we can't see. Mm. Uh, how'd that image come about <laughs> and talk more fully about what that means? Yeah. Um, you know, when my kids were little, there was a book that I read to them about, you know, when mom and dad get mad and they talked about, um, that doesn't mean they don't love you when they're mad, you know, that just because the love comes in the picture, the, or the anger comes in the picture doesn't mean that the love disappears. And it gave the illustration of like the sun shining, but you know, like if a rain cloud comes 
and blocks the sun, then um, the sun that doesn't mean the sun went away. And so I guess that idea kind of got stuck in my head about um, how we tend to want things to be all one way or all the other. You know, like we can't, we don't like to hold things in tension. We have a hard time believing that there's love and anger in the same space or from the same person. Um, And so with the moon, we tend to, it was just a good image that, um, because it cycles, you know, over and over, month after month, we still, we keep seeing the moon come out. And so we have learned that it's reliable, but, um, you know, if an alien came and they happened to land here on the new moon, on the night, you know, we, and we said, Oh, there's actually a moon up there. That might be hard for them to believe. Um, but you know, eventually they stay here long enough. They'll see it for themselves. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, interesting how kids can hold some of that tension better than adults can, (laughs) to be able to understand, you know, we just want proof of everything. We've got a sickness of enlightenment where we think we can prove everything. (laughs) If we see it, it doesn't exist. Or if we don't see it, it doesn't exist, but it's not true. You know, you um, are a bit of a rarity, (laughs) not completely. But a bit, of, a bit of a rarity in the sense that you have, um, in your struggles with sad things and with hard things that have gone on, uh, that you haven't given up pain. Mm. Um, it is often these hard things uh, that's what causes people to finally say, this doesn't seem to be working. Yeah. This doesn't seem to make sense to me. Yeah. Uh, and I know that we all struggle uh, with those kind of questions. Uh, but what for you was kind of the point in which you said, despite the sadness, despite the hard things, this is who I trust. This is what I believe. Um, well, I think I have to decide it probably eight times a day. I don't know. That I... well, yeah, and I understand that. Uh, Rachel Held Evans said yeah. that, you know, on the days that I still believe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that was a great phrase that she had yeah. that, I, that you know, resonates. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, um, something that I've learned now that I've, I'm 45 <laughs> and thankfully have found therapy and medication and have experienced life without depression um, is that when I was in the throes of depression, I was functioning at about, you know, 65, 70%. And I think some people have the idea that depression just means you're sad all the time. But for me, it was more like a numbness where I couldn't get all the way happy and I couldn't get all the way sad either. I was just kind of stuck in this numb area. And um, now that I have experienced functioning at a hundred percent and I've felt joy, real joy, um, I am able to agree with 
um, what Frederick Buechner says that all the sadness in life, if you set it next to, <laughs> to all the goodness, you know, the sadness would just be like this small little cup on a counter and, and the goodness is, is about everything else in the picture. Um, so even though there are great, uh, terrible, awful things like just today on the news an hour ago, you know, we hear about another school shooting and it's like, how, <laughs> what do I think now? I, I don't know. How can that happen? How can God let that happen? And after sitting with my friend tonight, you know, why, why does she, it's only been two months since her, since her husband died. Why is she raising her baby alone? You know, um, <laughs> I don't have answers. I don't know why, but I've experienced that I'm not alone in my sadness and that there's still the presence of God with me. And I, <laughs> it sounds really weird to say out loud that I just believe in a feeling, but there it is. I, I feel the Holy Spirit and I don't think I'm alone. And that's convinced me to keep trusting in him, but, um, or her. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, oh, it's okay. So. <laughs> I don't. I don't know how better to say explain it. Um, I, I feel held. Well, connected to that, mm -hmm. and with your theme of lamentation, yeah, um, is the um, understanding of darkness, mm -hmm. and how does that how does that play for you? What is the purpose of darkness? Uh, relating to lamentation, relating to understanding of God. Yeah. Um, I wish that God had a different way <laughs> that he could help us grow without darkness. But um, this is his world that he made, I guess. And uh, seeds grow in the dark. And um, there are things that can only happen in the dark that can't happen in the light. Um, so there is a purpose in it uh, that doesn't make it any easier to bear necessarily. It doesn't make it make sense, but um, it's not meaningless. Uh, I, that's why I appreciate poets. They just say it better <laughs> than you know, Wendell Berry says, um, again, we come to the resurrection of blood root from the dark, a hand that reaches up out of the ground holding a lamp. You know, I, that's what resurrection is. It tells us that there is something beyond the darkness. Maybe that's the purpose of it. We wouldn't be able to see that there was something beyond it, you know, if we never experienced it. You said you, um, that's why you like poets. Mm -hmm. They seem to say, and, and for you then, um, how does, how does poetry differ from your memoir? What, what, what does poetry do for you? How do you, you know, as a, as a, as a medium of writing, yeah. uh, what does poetry do that, that your other forms of writing don't? Do? I think poetry lets you, uh, play with, 
words a little bit more and um, you can have more layers of meaning and uh, the way that you structure it, even the way that it looks on the page has carries weight sometimes. Um, I think also with poetry, I can disguise more what I'm talking about. (laughs) And if it's a good poem, it still resonates with people. You know, the images still make sense, even if they don't know the specific thing I'm working through, they can take away their own meaning and, uh, or their own scenario, but the truth is still there. And so it's really mysterious like that. And I enjoy that. Well, do you, do you use it for healing in the same way that you did the memoir? Yeah, it helps me process. Um, and it, it also helps me crystallize a moment. I think when I'm usually trying to uh, just make something more real to myself, you know, a memory or something I want to hold on to, a thought. A poem can do that more. Yeah, well, and I can see that. And again, uh, one of the other people I'm interviewing that's written a memoir is also a poet. And and similar thing, Mm -hmm. uh, that poetry does something, but it's also a healing medium. And and they did that before they did the memoir. Right. Uh, You know, they were first poet, you know, and did poetry. Yeah. I had a friend tell me one time that um, the first poets were actually prophets. Um. And I had to chew on that for a minute. You know, the. They were actually musicians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because they sang. Right. Right. What they prophesied. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was, it was poetry, mm-hmm. uh, but it was also uh, musical. Yeah. Yeah. You've got some poems for us, and we're going to get to those in just a second. Okay. But there was one other thing about your book that I, I really enjoyed and thought was interesting is that um, uh, you you situated your story in terms of places. Mm-hmm. Uh, each chapter uh, is a location yeah. title. Talk about that. Um, you know, does, was that intentional? Does place come to play specifically for you? Yeah. Um, like I said, we moved a lot when I was growing up. And so I always hated when people would ask me where I was from. I didn't feel like I had a quick, short answer. Um, I never stayed anywhere long enough to really feel connected to a place and have the roots that I wanted. Um, you know, but I couldn't even name that that's what I wanted. I just knew that I needed more stability I sensed it somehow, but I didn't, I couldn't have put that into words. Um, And so when I came to writing this story, originally I laid it out kind of in a linear fashion. And then I changed that a few different times. I wanted to, I wasn't sure what the best way to not confuse my reader (laughs) with talking about topics and things that happened at different times in my life. And so I, um, ended up going with where I did the bulk of that, you know, the essay, is it a, if it's about a place that I lived, then I use that address of the time that I lived in that place. And, um, it just gave me a way to organize everything better. 
and understand um, how I was moving through time and through my story. And, uh, you know, I live in Knoxville, Tennessee now, and I've been here since 2006. And uh, before that, the longest I had been anywhere was six years, and that was in Maryland. And even in Maryland, we lived in two different houses. So um, I know what it feels like to have more stability and a connection to a place. And uh, yeah, so I think that's been good for me to, I don't think I could have made the progress I've made emotionally and spiritually had I continued to be a nomad, even though I sometimes pride myself on being a nomad. <laughs> um, it's been good to just be in one place with one group of people for a long time. You do have some poems for us. Yeah. Uh, read. So let's do that. Okay. Uh, um, the first one I'll read is called Liturgies for Breakfast and Laundry. Metal tines scraping against the edge of a ceramic bowl will always remind me of Judy, complaining about Bill's scrambled eggs. Runny and undercooked, she said, with a smile that betrayed any real frustration. The same way scraping fuzz from the dryer screen brings to mind Andrew's words about thankfulness. How even in the driest weather, your fingertips can still be damp enough to make some lint adhere. What a wonder opposable appendages are. What a blessing to have mouths and marriages, to be able to taste the goodness of the world. Even when cancer takes Judy away too soon, or the laundry sours because you forgot to take it out in time. There might still be some salty flavor left on the plate, or the unexpected softness of a warm yellow blanket. In your book, you um, talk about the liturgy of the senses, mm -hmm. and this this poem kind of epitomizes that. Yeah. Uh, talk about why liturgy. Um, you know, liturgy. When I was, I probably didn't know that word until my twenties, late twenties, <laughs> and um, I remember using it one time in an essay after I learned it to describe the church that I grew up in and my dad's habits as a preacher. And somebody said to me, that's not liturgy. That's, um, you know, you're in a Protestant or, or a evangelical Whoa. setting and there wasn't a liturgy there. And I said, well, there still was repetition. You know, we knew when the special music was going to come. We knew when the offering was coming. We knew when, how many songs were going to get played at the beginning. And um, so there is, a rhythm, um, even if you're not a liturgical church. <laughs> but the other definition that I heard about liturgy that is really helpful is that it is the work of the people. And um, I think in liturgical services, you know, the there'd be like responsive reading and um, people reading aloud along together and saying these things over and over, these creeds and these prayers and that repetition really, um, you know, makes things stick in your head better. But also the rising and the sitting and the kneeling and the standing, I think that those are, there's a physical element to that that makes it 
more um, the truth buries itself deeper in your body when you're moving as you're um, expressing those deep theological truths. You know, we like to just live in our heads sometimes as theologians, but there's a flesh and body experience to it as well. And so when I say liturgy of the senses, um, I think that God speaks to us, not just in our minds. He does it also with our sensation, with our hearing, um, the things we hear that he's created in nature, um, the beautiful sky that we see every night or um, music also that we hear, you know, the way things taste, the way things smell. I just think that that's intentional and that God gave us our bodies and our senses to be able to know him in a more intimate way than just talking, (laughs) just words. So, um, you know, when you're in the midst of a panic attack, uh, uh, one of the coping strategies that therapists will use with you is say, what can you feel? What can you hear right now? And they want to bring you into that present moment rather than your mind circling out into the future and panicking about what could happen. You know, you live in the present. And so I think That's kind of what I'm trying to get at when I say liturgy of sensation. Well, I I love the image and and, and I think you're you're right on with it. I think it's a great insight. Thanks. uh, In in helping us understand uh, how God speaks. Yeah. Uh, And it's not, like you say, not always verbally. Right. I mean, the first time that God shows up to Moses, it's a a bush is on fire and won't stop burning. You know, like that's not just about. God saying, here I am, I made the world, you know, it's this experience that Moses has that's just like he can't describe. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, and, and again, in this in this poem, uh, you've interwoven um, a sense of just the everydayness, but also a sense of the sadness mm-hmm. uh, that you, you lose Judy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And in the same way, I guess the friend that you've uh, went to minister with tonight mm-hmm. uh, is a is a young woman yeah. that uh, has lost her husband. Yeah, in our church. Yeah. Well, let's go to your second one. Okay. Uh, let's see. The COVID effect. Sure, that's the one I wrote in 2020. Obviously. Um. During probably shortly after the phase of the, you know, everybody was making fresh bread every day and things like that when we were on lockdown. So uh, here we go. The shelves in our pantries could buckle any day. So stacked are they with boxes, cans, and plastic bags. Clean white squares holding starch, grain, and paper products, well-preserved for years to come. While our kitchen counters overflow with fruits, yellow, orange, and red. Multiple sleeves of individually sliced bread and pre-made foil-covered chocolate. But what if flourishing means chopping up homegrown heads of cabbage, frying them in bacon grease and serving alongside mashed butter beans swimming in fat, then adding hunks of corn pone smeared with butter and drizzling the whole damn plate in rich black molasses? And it's a great image that you shift from this kind of prepper yeah. 
mentality yeah. uh, to to you know engaging again in the in the the, the joy of of cooking and the senses. Yeah, yeah. Um, I grew up in the South, you know, and uh, I didn't like molasses when I was growing up. My mom put it on stuff and I just thought, oh, why would you? I didn't like it at all, but now I have a, a good taste for it. <laughs> well, then, you know, uh, what brought about you thinking about, I mean, this poem, what does it, what does it do for you? Um, you know, it, I think it's about us trying to manage our uncertainty and our fear that we were all dealing with you know, having to adjust staying at home. And like I said, everybody was trying new recipes, <laughs> but we also had stocked up. We, you know, there was no toilet paper left in the stores. And, um, but, you know, when we just focused on being prepared, we weren't living, you know, and um, I also wanted, uh, this was, shortly after things politically started getting kind of crazy and we had um, the death of George Floyd and other things happening in our country where I um, just thought about that life is messy and we can't keep things separate all the time much as we want to. We can't order it, you know. So I was also just wanted to have two images that went up against each other like that. Okay. That's a great point. Thank you. All right. Poem number three. Okay. This one is called Becoming. I told my mother I wanted to think, but she told me that's for boys. I told my father I wanted to play, and he said, here's how. He thought I was talking about sports. I told my teachers I wanted to learn, and they called me smart. I told my husband I wanted to love, and he declared, we'll do it together, assuming I needed his help. I told my children I wanted to understand, but they were too busy needing to hear me. I told my friends I wanted to grow, and they all started laughing. I told the world I wanted to know, but it spun on in silence, till one day I told myself what I wanted, picked up a pen, and became a writer. Now that kind of culminates <laughs> in, in what you, what you've been doing talking about and yeah. uh, you know connecting uh, writing with uh, your own processing yeah experience. Um, how often did you encounter beyond your mother mm -hmm. uh, the notion that uh, thinking was for both? <laughs> Uh, still do. I would say I encountered it a lot. Yeah. Girls. You know, Cause you're 20 years younger than me. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so uh, a good deal happened between our generations. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But apparently not enough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, my mom was alive during the uh, women's movement, <laughs> but she was busy being a mom. And it didn't really uh, shift her thinking at all. And um, so in some ways, I'm more like your generation, I think, than my generation, grow having grown up with my mom. Um, 
but uh, also culturally, just in the South and in conservative church circles, you know, the men do the leading and the women take care of the babies and uh, the men do the preaching and the going to seminary and the women can sing praise music, you know, Um, (laughs) it just, it feels, I think there are still a lot of men that it feels threatening to, and that's unfortunate um, to have women think as much as they do. I have been told, you know, time and time again, well, you look much prettier when you smile by men, or I've been told something to the effect that my purpose is to just look pretty and adorn the environment, not to dig in and participate with building or creating, you know. Well, you set up, you set up each of your, your pairings kind of as a, as a negative, something happens, you want to do something and then, then there's a negative, but what about the one about, you know, I wanted to learn, but I was called smart. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I thought too much about that. (laughs) I was just recording what I remembered happening. Um, You know, it was okay for me to be smart. Um, Kind of a novelty, you know, as a a smart girl rather than, you know, but not, wasn't shown what to do with it, you know. Well, how do you how do you nurture your writing? You know, what is it that you do? What is it you read? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the things that you do in your own um, discipleship? I guess. Yeah. Um, that uh, enhances that. I think carving out time to just be quiet and still is good. Um, making sure that I'm not just plugged into the internet or social media all day long. Um, going on walks, uh, listening to music. Um, I also paint. I dabble a little bit in painting, and uh, that's been a fun way to just, um, you know, with writing, I feel like it generally has to have an end goal and share it with somebody and with painting, I don't, it's just fun. It's just play. And it kind of lets my brain relax. So I'm not trying to have an art show or <laughs> produce anything that's going to go anywhere. It's just for me, it's fun to play with color. It's soothing. Um, and I lately have just been reading fiction, lots of fiction. Um, I do want to get back to reading some nonfiction, but I think for a while my brain just didn't work that way because of stress of 2020 and everything else since then. Um, but my husband and I like to go to plays, go to theater, um, go to the movies. So stuff like that is all usually where I get ideas as well. Yeah. Is your husband still a pastor? Yes. So we have a church plant in South Knoxville that is, uh, he's the executive pastor. So he 
does like the administrative stuff. He does not usually preach on Sunday morning. Um, he's more manages the volunteers and pays the bills and, or make sure that we have a finance person now, make sure that she pays the bills. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, stuff like that. So, um, but we- well, having had a dad that was a pastor, mm-hmm. Uh, and and watching your mom being a pastor's wife, yeah. Uh, and uh, how does how does how does your image of being a pastor's wife? I resisted it for a long time, <laughs> and I still <laughs> feel really weird calling myself that. But um, you know, John and I, uh, we both felt called to this specific church and it's his first time being in this position as he served as a, the tech director at our other church for about 12 years before we went to this church plant. So, um, yeah, I don't feel like that's my main identity for sure. My main identity that I want is just a beloved child of God. Um, So, uh, but we are at a intentionally multiracial and multiethnic church. Um, and we have about 75 people that attend and we're three years old and it's been really good for both of us to be there. So yeah, it's a great community. As a final question, Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of connected. Uh, part of what I've, I asked the, the other one about your pastoral yeah. sense. Um, in, in, in kind of going back again to your poem about, you know, there are certain things that are, that are male responsibilities yeah. as opposed to female. Yeah. Um, how do you see your writing as being a means by which God speaks in the same way that a sermon is the medium by which God speaks? Um, I do uh, see it similarly. I do think there's a prophetic element to writing and poetry, um, or the kind that I do anyway. <laughs> um, and I f- do think that it's a gift that God gave me and that I'm supposed to use it to here's a real church word for you, edify other people, other believers, uh, and the world at large. Um, so, you know, thankfully I don't have to go to seminary or have a be ordained or have permission to do any of this. I can just give myself permission. (laughs) And, um, I, I still think there's responsibility for me to tell the truth. Um, but I don't know that it's the same as a pastor, as far as having a flock, you know, um, is that the rest? Did that answer your question? I don't remember if you had another part, (laughs) but I do think that what you do edifies, uh, and I'm grateful, uh, for the work that you've done. I'm, I'm grateful that you have chosen to, uh, defy, um, cultural parameters and, 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 and limitations, uh, to do what you do. Thank you. 
Uh, so thank you for your writing. Thank you for your work. Thanks. Uh, thank you for helping us know God better. Thanks for reading. I appreciate it. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.